Welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. I'm Kathy, your host, and this is the third episode of a three-part piece. If this is your first time listening, you're going to want to go back and listen to episodes 41 and then 42 first. Before we begin, I would like to give a shout out to the podcast Death by Champagne. Mac is the host and is a wonderful person and has been a, a great friend to me for someone who has been just starting out. If you like true crime, take a listen to Death by Champagne. It's available on Spotify, Podbean.com, and iTunes, just to name a few. Now on to this week's episode, number 43. The last episode, I left off at the trial and with prosecutor Everett Shockley. Everett had his work cut out for him and had to piece together, along with those who were also on the state police, jurisdictions to find evidence and convict Epperly of the murder of Gina Renee Hall. And in the end, they were successful. However, that wasn't the end for Epperly before he was taken into custody. No, Epperly decided that he needed time to get away from what was going on and went to Circleville, Ohio. In the previous episode during the interview, you heard some of what was said about what had happened. And again, I must emphasize that this was only speculation. But in August of 1980, Epperly went and spent some time with a friend of his, one Ted Teddy Powell, who had played for OSU. And during that time, there seemed to have been a killer on the loose in that particular area. And anyone who is into true crime probably has heard of the Circleville letters. If not, maybe I can summarize some of what had happened. Someone in the town had started to call out some for various misdeeds. And I put that in quotes because most of it had nothing to do with anyone else, but with two certain individuals in the, in an immediate family. Now, these letters originally started in 1976 and just kept going. And living in a small town, as anyone knows, is hard. Everyone knows everyone's business, especially if you've lived there your whole life. The letters started with a Mary Galepsi, who was a school bus driver, and she had started receiving letters, and the person knew that Mary was having an affair with a man named Massey, who at the time was the school's superintendent at that time, and wanted that person wanted Mary to end it, which this sounds more like a soap opera at this point more than anything else. How do you get it to stop, meaning the letters, when you don't know where it's coming from? How do you keep it hidden from your husband when you don't want your marriage to end? But Mary couldn't. The person writing the letters ended up writing one to Mary's husband. And there's way, way more to this story, which I'll cover. But the person that I wanted want to talk about is Vicki Cope. Vicki was a school teacher in Circleville, Ohio, who on August 14th, 1980, went to Ross County concert, went to a Ross County concert with some friends. That evening, Vicki went missing. Her car was found a mile and a half from her apartment. Now, Vicki was supposed to go and visit her family in Sandusky, Ohio, and when she didn't show, her family thought it was odd. They reported her missing between four and five days after Vicki not showing up. But here's where it gets interesting. Not only has Vicki gone missing from an event that she was at with friends and her car was found a distance away from her home, Vicki herself was described as a driven, 
responsible, and caring person. Does this remind you of anyone? Here is the only difference. Vicky's body was found a month later on September 17, 1980, in a field in Madison County. Now, I say that Vicky has been linked to the Circleville letter murders only in the fact that her murder was mentioned in one of the letters and that it states that her murder was witnessed by two teenage boys. Well, if that's the case, why haven't they come forward? Even after all this time, if they were afraid of someone, that person surely couldn't still hold that much power, could they? That's an interesting point. Or do they feel like they wouldn't be believed? That being said, I have been in contact with the detective in charge, and he has returned my phone call, but being upfront, it has been me getting back to him. But looking at the similarities, you cannot help but wonder if Epperly didn't have a hand in Vicky's murder. Again, this is speculation. I have to admit that all of these line up along with Gina Hall's similar similarities with her murder. Now, on to this week's episode and the interview. This week is about speaking with Ron Peterson Jr. and why he decided to write, a, write the book about this murder. I would like to thank Ron for taking the time and speaking with me. I had a wonderful time doing this interview. All right, Ron, first, let me start off by uh, thanking you for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, if you would like to um, or can, um, start out what you know about Gina Hall. Well, Gina Hall, according to every account, was just a, just a fabulous person. You know, at age 18, uh, she was deeply religious, was active in church, grew up in a small town west of Radford, Coburn, Virginia, and in a lot of ways was, you know, was a, a kind of a classic small town girl. She was, uh, was good. She was voted most popular in her senior class in high school. Um, she was most certainly not promiscuous in terms of uh, her relationships with men. Um, and, um, you know, just a, just a wonderful person that anyone would have wanted as a, as a daughter or sister or friend. And, and that's what I have heard and read from numerous accounts. And I really appreciate you telling me what you do know. Can you tell me and my listeners, um, a little bit about your book, because I, I did not introduce you, Ron Peterson Jr., and you are an author, and your book, which is Under the Trestle. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure, absolutely. It was it was published in uh, December 2018 and um, has been a true crime bestseller uh, through, through most of 2019. And... Um, my personal connection to the case, I, I went to Radford University, was a journalism major there, um, wrote for the student newspaper, was a sports editor there, and uh, first heard about the case as a, as a student there. The rumor was that, um, it's kind of what we call an urban myth now, but that uh, that her body was buried somewhere on campus, and uh, I was intrigued by it just, you know, because quite frankly, we, we all like a good murder mystery. And I remember studying the case then. I even mentioned it in a, an editorial that I wrote. And it was one of those things that just stayed on my mind over the years. You know, that, and that was, gosh, for me about 35 years ago since when I first heard about it. And 
the internet era rolled around and I would find myself, you know, uh, finding old news articles on the case and Google searching Gina Renee Hall's name, um, you know, hoping all along that, uh, that her remains would have turned up. Um, you know, I think closure is an overused word, but her family, you know, I certainly wanted them to have some resolution, um, in terms of, you know, laying her remains to rest. Um, so then, then uh, a few years before I wrote the book, just um, in conversation with, with my wife, I'd written another book, which was a sports book, and there wasn't a real big market for it. Had a literary agent tell me, and, you know, you know what's really popular right now is the true crime genre. And right away, a light bulb kind of went off, and I remembered the, you know, the story of Gina Hall and uh, started researching it a bit more deeply. Um, I called some of the principals in the case just out of the blue on the telephone, one was Trooper Austin Hall, who was the lead investigator, and then also Everett Shockley, who was the Commonwealth attorney, and um, just told them a little bit about my background that I, you know, I had not written any books of note, but you know, wanted to tell the story and tell it as accurately as I could. And um, they were very helpful. And then from there, I, I also interviewed uh, Stephen Epley's defense attorneys, as well as the witnesses in the case. And uh, also friends and uh, family members of the killer, Stephen Epperly, and uh, of Gene Hall as well. Wow. that I mean, that's, that's a lot of um, uh, in-depth interviewing and for a first-time interviewer. What did you learn personally while writing the book? Um, well, I, I learned, you know, quite frankly, there was a, a lot that happened that is, is not known. Um, you know, for example, how did, how exactly did Gina get from the Blacksburg Marriott Lounge, the nightclub she was at, to the lake house? Um, and then, of course, the biggest thing, you know, is, is what happened to her remains after the murder. Um, I think a lot of the things, you know, that the were known from the, the court testimony, which incidentally, it's, uh, there's audio recording of that at the State Library of Richmond, which I took time to listen to, you know, and then. Uh, took off work from my regular job to do that, and um, you know, just as you'd expect, you know, just kind of drew me in even more in terms of, of being interested in the case and that question of you know where where Gina's remains could be. That and 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 I can understand that it took me five minutes, five minutes to be drawn into this case. That's all it took. Uh, I just started reading, and that was it. Um, yeah. But what surprised you the most uh, while you were researching? Um, well, I, you know, I, I guess um, just uh, what you said is, is just how quickly the case does draw people in. And I hesitate to call it the case because it's story of the, you know, the murder of, a, of an outstanding 18-year-old young woman in Gina Hall. But, um, but just how, how interesting and really heart-wrenching it is from so many different uh, points of view. I mean, it's. I've, I've spoken uh, over the last two years with with several uh, filmmakers, both in the documentary realm and also in a, you know, a, a based on a true story type of, of film, and you know, heard them talk about the, the different approaches that that they would bring to it if they were going to tell the story on screen. You know, there's the classic um, angel meets the devil kind of story, which is a large degree what happened. You know, then there's a story of, of the young, scrappy Commonwealth attorney, you know, 29-year-old Everett Shockley, who had just been elected, you know, the, the, they hadn't even been on the job for a year, 
and um, had this this murder case where he was 100% certain who committed the murder, had all the evidence he needed except for the, the biggest piece, which was, was Gina's body. And uh, he went against the advice, um, as you know, he may have shared with you, um, of some of his colleagues, including his predecessor in the job and another Commonwealth attorney in the area who was his peer, who told him not to prosecute the case, uh, that the biggest fear was double jeopardy, that, you know, Eberle would gain an acquittal, and then even if the body was found, he, he could not be brought to justice and tried again. Uh, Trooper Hall, and I, I cannot help but call him Trooper Hall. It was it was really hard for yeah. me to say Mr. Hall. Uh, he had explained <laughs> he had explained that to me. Um, so exactly, exactly, and and I use the term case only because that's what I that's what I'm used to, and it is Gina's story, and that's what I said oh, too. Yeah, yeah. It, it it is her story because she needs to be heard, um, and. Um, but for for you, what was the hardest scene for you to write? Um, probably um, pie- piecing together the account of what happened the, the night of Gina's disappearance. Um, my my book goes directly from the court testimony of um, of Beverly's good friend Bill King, who was who was with him for for most of that night, and. Um, uh, some people, and I may refer to him in the book as Eppley's best friend, and um, at that point he was probably not his best friend. That was a mistake on my part. You'll occasionally hear people in podcasts and you know other refer to him as his best friend, but he was certainly his good friend and almost a lifelong friend. Um, but the you know in the book, my account comes from the court testimony of Bill King. You know, I, I went over that really good. Uh, King was on the stand and and testified against Epperly, and it may have been the most damning evidence of the trial, and that, uh, you know, he, he stated what went on uh, most of most of the night of her disappearance. Okay. Now, was there anything that you edited out of your book? So that's a, another, another good question. There was, um, there was one thing I wished I had left in. There was a um, person, in fact, she was an Internet commenter. Uh, her name was Kimberly Jett who um, had posted on an internet message board stating that she was in the Marriott Lounge that night uh, in the nightclub and that uh, Eppley had been bothering Gina, um, you know, throughout the night. And um, it, that's that's probably a gray area, you know, in terms of what actually happened when the two of them, if and when they came in contact, you know, inside the Marriott. And I edited that out. I just didn't believe she was, was credible. Um, you know, I thought she was kind of just an attention seeker and, um, would, had been unable to get in contact with her. Um, but, um, but at any rate, I, I should have put that in there with kind of a disclaimer, you know, that, Hey, the reader should take it with a grain of salt. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's one thing that I wish I'd not edited out, but I did for the sake of, you know, brevity. Well, isn't there kind of like an intuition when you're writing? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Sure. Yeah. There's the, you know, should you put it all in there or, um, you, you know, take things out that you feel may or may not be an, an important part of the story. Um, now, was the book emotionally draining for you? Um, for me, it, uh, it, it, there were times when it, you know, when it was, um, but, um, I mean, you know, it was something to a large degree. I was energized by it, you know, by the, the work I did and the more that I learned about it and just learning, for example, about our criminal justice system, um, but you know, certainly when you when you sit and you you really think on what happened, you know the one that's a great question. If I think about it more, the one.
Um, I have a daughter right now who's exactly Gina Hall's death at, you know, age at the time of her mm-hmm. death, 18 years old. And um, I found myself putting myself in Gina's father's shoes, John yeah. Hall. And, um, you know, he was, was quite a story, just a, a wonderful man. And all of the investigators and police officers who were involved in the case uh, just speak really, really well of him and just how he, how he handled such a tragedy. And, um, you know, he was, he had to be kept up to date and actually involved in every part of the investigation. Yet, you know, they didn't have any resentment toward him in the way that, the way that he handled it. There was even one, um, and this was, um, gosh, I don't have it right in front of me, but it was within a week or two of Gina's disappearance when the state police allowed him to have a one-on-one meeting with, with Epperly, with, with just one other person present, which is kind of unheard of, but that was how highly they thought of him and his level of character and his his self-control. That's that's wonderful. I I, I, I snuck on your Facebook page, and even, even those on the Facebook page had nothing but good things to say about him. So... That's yeah. that's got to say a lot. So and 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 there's and there's a um, a social click in that part of the area. I lived in West Virginia for a little bit, and all you have you don't ask for directions. That's the thing. You say where you're going, <laughs> whose house you're going to, because <laughs> I got lost down there, <laughs> and I pulled over, and they were like, "Oh, honey, where are you going?" <laughs> and I said the person's name. Oh. It's just down yonder. <laughs> you, you, just, you, don't, you don't have to say anything but the person's name and they know. And, 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 that's, and that's what it was. I loved, I loved living down there. And it was the only place that we ever fought to stay to because it was, it was just such a beautiful area. And, it, and that it, it was that family home atmosphere that we just oh, enjoyed. Yeah. We really did. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, yeah. um, for those that you interviewed uh, for your book, have they ever said anything to you what they thought about it? Uh, about the book? Yeah. Um, they, uh, a few of the comments I got were, were that one, one of the defense attorneys said, if, you know, that, that my book was, in his opinion, 99% accurate. He felt like there were, there were a few details I got wrong or, you know, just flat out mistakes. But that all in all, you know, it was, was pretty accurate. Uh, or he said 99% accurate. Um, as well as a lot of other people have, you know, said similar things. And then I'm also really happy that when the book came out, I did a, a book tour and did a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, mostly a lot of the small towns around southwest Virginia, you know, between Roanoke and even Gina's hometown of Coburn. And um, the uh, Everett Shockley, the prosecutor, and Austin Hall, the lead investigator, as well as the defense attor- attorneys came, and they actually spoke at some of my, my book events, you know, oh, the nice. lectures that I gave, and um, shared their insight on the case, you know, kind of as a as a learning experience, you know, about our, our justice system. So, um I, I was, you know, I was really proud that they'd be willing to do that, you know, and I felt that that spoke a great deal to the credibility of the book. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, with Epperly, um, he's behind bars and he's going to be there for life. Um, is it possible that he's connected to any other cases? I'm sorry. Did you say connected to other murders? Correct. Um, yeah, there, there certainly is. Um, 
Gina's sister, Delena, I know has gone to great lengths to, to link him to other murders. Um, I don't know that she's turned up any uh, concrete proof. I may be wrong, um, but, you know, certainly no direct evidence linking him, you know, other than just um, circumstances or being in a certain place where someone disappeared. Now, the one exception to that might be um, in uh, a few months after Gina's disappearance, when Emily was still a suspect, before he'd been indicted for murder. This would have been August of 1980. He was indicted in early September of 1980. But um, he moved to... Um, the Columbus, Ohio area to stay with a former teammate, a guy by the name of uh, Ted Powell, who had played football at uh, Ohio State University. And he stayed in the Columbus area with with uh, Mr. Powell for at least a few weeks. And um, there was a girl there that went missing who disappeared, a 28-year-old school teacher named Vicki uh, Koch. And uh, that murder remains unsolved. Her body was found in a cornfield. But um, investigators, both in Ohio and Virginia, felt there were a lot of similarities between that incident and uh, and Gina's. So they have they have talked to each other about it. It just hasn't been linked to anything else. Yeah, there was. You know, it's my understanding, and I haven't seen the police following. There was absolutely no direct evidence, or you know, or even. Or I should say any forensic evidence or testimony that, or witness statements that linked Epperly to that murder, other than the fact that, you know, he was there at that time. Okay. Now, staying with Epperly, uh, he had a couple rape charges that were never, he was never convicted for, correct? He did, yes. And that's one of the, kind of one of the social issues I tried to explore in the book and probably didn't do it as fully as I could have, but. Um, that, that happened in the 1970s. It was um, 1976, and then he, one of them, he eventually went on trial in 78. But, um, you know, the unfortunate thing is, with terms of sexual assault, it was a, a different time and place back then, in that uh, it was much harder for a man to be convicted of rape. Um, you know, it was a lot of, uh, in a trial, for example, it was not unusual. In fact, it was defense strategy 101 for the victim to be put on trial. You know, her um, her lifestyle, her social history or sexual history and things like that. And um, but both of those, uh, he was acquitted in both of those. One was a jury trial. The other, the judge ruled on it and dismissed it. And um, he had very good legal representation in both trials and, um, you know, was was acquitted in both of them. And it's probable, according to the attorneys I talked to, that if he went on trial, the exact same circumstances today, he would have been convicted on on each of them. So if there's anything good to be gained from that, it's that, you know, things have changed with regard to um, to bringing those kind of people to justice and sexual assaults. Um, now, you just spoke about him going to a friend's place in Ohio. Now, it, it, he went to afterwards, he had... He, he had gone to a friend's place in Richmond, Virginia also, right? Or a friend or family? Um, he, uh, according to my research, and I probably don't only have the tip of the iceberg, um, after he graduated from Virginia Tech in the spring of 1978, he moved to Richmond uh, with a friend um, and um, either had a job or had a line on a job there, but it didn't work out for him, so he moved back to, to Radford and uh, was living with his parents, you know, in his boyhood home. 
where he he was until 1980, where he was living at the the time of Gina's murder. Um, and that's the extent of my knowledge about about Richmond. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, like I said, I I had uh, just peeked at your Facebook page, and there were a lot of theories that were floating around that he had help. Um, and there was such a short timeline, uh, and I also had a little bit of a peek at the uh, search area. How much of that actual area near the um, lake house was that searched? Because it seemed like there was like, if you overlap them, it was like um, a line. It's like, um, I'm going to drop a little bit here. I'm going to drop a little bit here. I'm going to drop a little. It's like crumbs, like Hansel and Gretel. That, that's what it looked like to me. So it was like he was right. leading them away. Okay. You mean as far as the evidence, Gina's clothing and so forth? Yeah. Correct. Correct. Um, Like I said, it was just a peak. And there was even speculation, and and it's only that speculation, that maybe those items that were found along, you know, along the the river, along the New River, just off the the train trestle, which included Gina's clothing, uh, two towels from the lake house that had forensic evidence, blood and carpet fiber on them, um, as well as one of her shoes. There was even speculation, and this is just after the fact by, you know, folks interested in the case, that that, that could have been planted, you know, in the, the, the days after the murder, either by Epperly or even by someone else, you know. It's, um, but they, they were presented in court um, as exhibits, as uh, evidence, you know, that laid out the, the timeline and the events of the evening of her murder. Yeah, it, uh, like I said, it was just a peek. It was a quick peek. Because I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't had a chance, and I, I had my little guest this morning. Um, now, Epperly, and since he's been in prison, has anyone come forward uh, saying that he has spoken about Gina? He has not. There are um, several stories from former inmates, excuse me, who um, who have shared stories. You know, a lot of that is is kind of um, you know forty year old hearsay, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, like one one of the comments he made to someone who uh, uh, either a former inmate or even a cellmate who was talking to him about it, um, you know, was that it, he just said kind of dismissively, you know, well I ate her, um, you know, just I guess as something odd odd to say. Um, Wait a minute, can you repeat? Also made a, can you repeat that yeah, again? Yeah, he said that he he ate her body. Would, was a comment. Now, I, I don't think he was a cannibal or anything. I shouldn't have even gone down that road. But oh, that was no, one no, no. comment that's often quoted from a you know another inmate or cellmate of mm-hmm. his. Um, another comment that's attributed to him. Um, I don't know. If there's any written evidence of it. Was that um, you know that they drive over and I'm paraphrasing here, but they drive over her body every day, which you know insinuates she was buried either under a road or even as you know as part of the the road or something like that. Almost like um, a cistern or something like there, that. <laughs> yeah, um, but um, you know, there's been been no certainly anything like that. You, the whole jailhouse snitch, you know, kind of thing. You'd have to take with a grain of salt on what other right. other people have shared. Um, interestingly, I've had uh, two former inmates who knew Epperly behind the walls uh, that have come to my events on my book tour, uh, speaking engagements, and made a point to introduce themselves afterwards and, you know, and share, share their insight on what he was like in, in prison. Um, and then, 
one more thing you mentioned, I'm, I'm going to backtrack here for a second, but I think it's significant um, just in the interest of the, there may be, you know, that one one or two people out there who might have some bit of information that could help find her body. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that Everly might have had help. And, um, you know, if he did, my opinion would be he had help, you know, after her murder and disposing of the body. And um, there's two names that come up a lot that were, were friends of his. Um, one is a guy named Tom Hardy, and there's quite a bit on the record about him in terms of his criminal past. Um, he was involved in the drug trade in Radford, um, came from a well-to-do family, um, had money, and um, was was a good friend of Epperly's. Um, what police officer told me at one point that Epperly was suspected of being the muscle behind his drug dealing. And um, But Tom Hardy is certainly someone who... Uh, could have or, or even would have helped Epperly dispose of a body, you know, if he was asked. Um, Hardy is deceased, so I, I'm, is why I'm speaking freely about him. Um, and then another person was a local guy, local contractor, who actually lived on the New River about a mile or two downstream from the trestle uh, by the name of Jerry D. Hart, um, who there's a ton of stories floating around the New River about him. You know, a lot, a lot of them, I think, are rumors and hearsay, and people take them as gospel. Right. Um, but um, uh, Jerry DeHart was a was a violent guy, was also involved in the drug trade. And uh, there was a, a former girlfriend of his who, quite frankly, didn't have a lot of credibility, but had made the statement a few times that uh, Jerry told her that he helped dispose of Gina's body. Um, so you, so those, those are two guys, both of them deceased, that if Eberly did have help disposing of the body, you know, they'd certainly be prime candidates to have done that. Um, you know, I, I always thought maybe, and both of them were, uh, you know, drank and did drugs often, that maybe sometime in a, in an altered state, either drunk or high on drugs back in the, the 80s or 90s, that they might have, you know, might have said something and in mixed company that someone heard and, you know, could uh, could be some small bit of information. So that's I always just make a point to say that if there's anyone out there that that knew them or knew anything they they might have said off the cuff that could could uh, be a link in this case. Did either one of them drive a black Cadillac? <laughs> um, Tom Hardy did drive a Cadillac. That's uh, and I'm sorry I'm laughing just because it's uh, um, you know the coincidence of it, but um, he did drive a Cadillac. I've heard it was black. I've heard dark blue. I've heard just a dark color, but um, he he certainly did. Yep. Wow. And you're there. I'm sure you tell the listeners, but um, there was a there were reports of a Cadillac being sighted underneath the the trestle as well. You know, alongside G, uh, uh, Gina's abandoned car. Correct. Correct. That's why I act, asked if uh, any if yes, either one drove a black caddy. So yeah, it's it's amazing what people will say on Facebook. They just don't care. Um, I, you gotta love. Oh, it. absolutely. You gotta love it. Um, but yeah, I mean, and but what about Bill King? Now again, he was a a very good friend. Uh, maybe not best friend, but good friend. Now, is it possible that he could have helped? I, I need to say about Bill King, um, it's noteworthy to me that he was, as I said, he provided the most damning testimony in the trial as far as laying out the, you know, the um, events of the evening in question. And if you look at it without his testimony, I think Epperly would not have been convicted. 
and Bill King had not been convicted of a crime, you know, before that or after that. You know, his only, uh, if you, you know, his only maybe lapse in judgment was was you know being in the company of someone like Epperly, who you know he probably knew was you know was a was a predator. Um, but um, you know, I did not, and all the people I talked to, I talked to old uh, classmates, teammates. Uh, police officers who knew him, you know, both before they were police officers and while they were, and um, you know, all of them were adamant that he uh, he would have had nothing to do with it. You know, as a guy, in my opinion, he's a guy of high moral character um, who who has has led a good life, and and um, you know, I I don't think otherwise. And, and with regard to him, I ha- yeah. had to ask because uh, family home walk in, find someone dead body. Oh my gosh! Of course, that's probably not the words he used, but you know, got to get it out of here. So, and mom and dad come home, and you know, nope, nothing happened. I don't know what happened. Um, you know, but it's yep. and one then, um, of those things. Also, in in uh, and I, I would just say this in, in his defense as well. And I know you may have already mentioned it because I know you've been really thorough in your research, but um. um Bill King did take a polygraph. Um, the poly guy that administered it was a guy named Frank Sherwood with Virginia State Police, who was was highly regarded as a polygraph operator. And um, although you know polygraphs weren't then and now you know admissible in, in court, um, you know in that kind of situation, um, he you know there was no deception in his polygraph. Correct. And um, Correct. you know I, I put I put a lot of stock in you know in that. Um, so that's, you know, is, is another thing there. And I had a, uh, a detective tell me, you know, that the, the best prediction of a person's behavior is either past behavior or future behavior. And, um, you know, as I said, he's, he's been someone who's he's been a coach and has done, you know, done a lot of great things in terms of, of helping out young people as a coach and an educator. And I, I, in that research that I have seen, and and I did speak to Trooper Hall, I didn't get anything bad back. Um, now I have to say that there has been one person that has said that that they believe that he did help, but um, that's a different story. So, um, but again, um, that's a neither here nor there. Um, so, but that being said. Um, it, it, it's, it's a, um, more along the lines of, could it have been, this is my parents' house. I, you know, one of those things and I wasn't there. I can't, I can't say if he was, I don't know. And, but again, like I said, passed and, um, and it was someone that was there that told me that interviewed the person and has seen them straight up face to face. So I can't go against that one. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, and they also interviewed the, uh, girlfriend at the time. So, um, and I don't, and yeah. I don't think she personally probably could have held on to this that long. So, um, Oh, absolutely. And yeah. yeah, that's something that you cannot, you cannot, um, hang on to. But um, the other thing is, I know you have another book coming out, Chasing the Squirrel. Can you please tell the listeners about that one? Well, thank you. I appreciate you asking about that, Kathy. Um, yeah, it came out uh, about a month ago, and um, 
it was interesting. I'm, I'm from the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, the coast of Virginia is where I'm originally from and live there now with my, my wife and family. And, um, um, so I, I spent a lot of time in the New River Valley, you know, in Southwest Virginia researching this case. And as I was doing it, several people, including, um, Trooper Austin Hall said, um, Hey, if, if this book goes well, you got to write one about Wally Thrasher. And I said, well, who is Wally Thrasher? And, what I came to learn was he was a, a local guy there from Chalaski County, which is the same county where this murder took place. Um, graduated from Chalaski High School in 1958. Uh, was this good-looking, charismatic, larger-than-life guy. Um, he became a pilot and then uh, got jobs as a commercial pilot in, in Florida in the early 70s. And um, became interested and involved in drug trafficking. Uh specifically smuggling marijuana and uh, some cocaine, but he was mostly a, a marijuana smuggler. And he did it for the better part of, of a decade, from the, the mid-70s into the mid-80s. Was very successful at it, um, both of you know, the number of, of <laughs> smuggles that he did and, and the amount um, would fly marijuana from point south from you know, South America or the Caribbean or Mexico into Florida. And then when the DEA drug interdiction got really hot in Florida in the early 80s. He had the idea to fly it all the way into Virginia, and um, oh, where it was picked up by drug traffickers from up north. Most of the product went uh, up north, although some of it found its way around southwest Virginia and the college campuses, you know, around there. But um, so I, uh, in researching it, I, I got to know his son, who was six years old when he disappeared. Um, and I'll say more about his parents in a minute, um, as well as his uh, former wife and widow, Olga Thrasher, um, who faced some charges after he disappeared. Um, so they helped me with the research, shared a lot of the, the testimony and uh, police reports in it. And um, the state police and the DEA had tried to catch up with Wally Thrasher, you know, had tried to catch him with either the drugs or the money, had been unsuccessful at doing that. For, for many years, and then in 84, they they um, got really hot on his trail, and there was evidence, you know, against him that they could use to indict him, and there was a report from Belize that he had allegedly died in a plane crash, and the flames were so intense that his body was burnt to ashes. So there's been speculation since, you know, is he dead or alive? Um, I need to say, you know, his wife is adamant that he, he, or his widow, I should say, is adamant that he died um, but there's a lot of people, including law enforcement, that think he could still be alive. He'd be 80 now, which might be a stretch, but they believe he lived at least for, for many years, you know, maybe in the, the Caribbean or some tropical land, um, which adds a lot to the story. And then after his disappearance, um, his wife was arrested. She made a plea bargain to become a federal informant and federal witness and helped the DEA make the largest bust in the, in the history of the mid-Atlantic United States. About 12 international traffickers were arrested, you know, all as a result of this initial investigation of Wally Thrasher. So, wow, I kind of piece, I kind of pieced together that whole story. I mentioned his son. The big irony of the story is that his son, who was six when Wally died or disappeared, is now a police officer in uh, suburban Atlanta. So his son has done a lot of put a lot of his resources in investigating it, and and was nice enough to share a lot of that that with me as well as a former DEA agent who went undercover named Don Lincoln, a former U.S. Marshal and Sheriff in that area named Wayne Pike, 
and then a local uh, Virginia State Police special agent by the name of Dave Dean, um, all of whom you know really wanted the story told and and uh, you know thought it was a, a interesting, compelling story as as a lot of readers have as well. Wow, that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it was. And, and, it's one of those, you know, if, if it were fiction, you wouldn't believe it. You'd be like, this is far-fetched, you know. And even even as I was writing it, I, I had that, that feeling. Just amazing story and just, a, uh, you know, a guy who, uh, Wally Thrasher, just um, just lived, lived an incredible life. Um, and, and I'll kind of leave it at that in terms of the stories in the book. Oh, wow. It's, it sounds almost like you, you couldn't even make it up if you tried. That's right. You're exactly right. Wow, that is amazing. Now, where yes, can indeed. where can the readers purchase your books? Um, they are they're available at some Barnes and Nobles uh, in in Virginia, in Southwest Virginia, Hampton Roads. Um, probably the most you know most folks buy them off of Amazon, and you know these days there's more books sold on Amazon than any other retailer combined. You know that the whole Amazon effect with books like everything else. Absolutely. Um, so Amazon's the quickest way, you know, they ship uh, pretty quickly within a day or two. Um, but they're both there, you know, under the trestle as well as chasing the squirrel. And um, uh, available, uh, under the trestle is available in paperback, in Kindle, and also in audiobook, audible format. And then chasing the squirrel, my second book is soon to be out and it's out in paperback now soon to be out in Kindle and, and then Audible after that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Is there anything that I should have asked but didn't? That's a, another good good question. <laughs> you are you are very, very good at this. <laughs> um, no, you know, other than um, I, a big part of my motivation for, you know, for writing the book about Gina Hall and Under the Trestle was that I, I just had this feeling that there, you know, there might be one or two people out there that have that one bit of information that could, you know, could help lead the authorities to, um, you know, where her remains might be. I, I think, and talking to some of the folks that have searched for one of whom I haven't mentioned, but deserves to be mentioned is, um, Andy Wilburn. He was a Radford police lieutenant. He retired from Radford police this past year, but he spent, uh, many years, uh, recently, you know, following up on leads for Gina, spent a lot of his own time, night and weekends. And, you know, became quite almost like a lot of people, you know, obsessed with the case and with finding her remains. Um, but um, going back to what I was saying, you know, if there's anyone who has maybe some bit of information, you know, maybe that the two friends of Everly that I mentioned, uh, Tom Hardy or Jerry DeHart, something they might have might have said or alluded to years ago, um, you know, to, to share that with the Virginia State Police. Um, I, Kathy, I will maybe before you produce this, I'll send you the phone number. I don't have it right in front of me, but where someone could, you know, could call a lead into if they do have, you know, any kind of lead or tip from, from years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always put the numbers in my podcast and I, I also list them on the, um, on my boards so that I would greatly appreciate that. Great. Wonderful. All righty. I am going to hit pause on this. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Now, since the book has been written and since Epperly has been in prison, Epperly has appealed to the parole board 
In December of 2019, Epperly petitioned for a geriatric conditional release consideration. He's only 66 years old. He was denied parole. Not only was he denied parole, but the parole board deferred his next consideration until the maximum amount of time that is allowed, which is a total of three years. He won't be able to apply again until 2022. The board made their decision on November 11, 2019, saying, quote, if we release at this time, it would diminish the seriousness of the crime, end quote. Back in 2018, Epperly was also denied discretionary parole and again was denied the, the maximum amount of time then. At this point, the parole board had denied him six times. Stockley continues to write to the parole board whenever Epperly comes up for parole and Everett certainly believes that Epperly was a danger before and would be so now. As for Delena, she continues to this day to look for the remains of her sister Gina. Back in 2016, according to an article by Ann Taylor, Delena had spoken to the grandson of a farmer who said that he, quote, possibly knew where Gina might be. And the grandfather had held on to this secret for all these years, or the grandson stated that his grandfather had believed he had been a witness to what had happened to Gina all those years ago. And I have to say that it had been reported to the police all those years ago, and to my knowledge, followed up on. To the rest of the above-mentioned article, Delena believes that she has found some of Gina's remains. Whether if she did or not, we'll have to wait to see. But what people like Delena, and I'm talking about those who have lost loved ones and have been searching for their bodies slash remains need to be aware of that there are that there are those that are too willing to take advantage of them. There are those that are out there to seek out attention or take their money by whatever means. And to this I say, shame on you. Although if you've st stooped this low, you have no shame. And I have therefore just wasted my breath. But I do hope that the remains of that Delena found are those of Gina. The way Gina, that way Gina can be put to rest and Delena herself can finally find the peace she de that she deserves. This is the co conclusion of Gina Ren Renee Hall. If you have any questions or comments about this case, please go to my Facebook page at All Things Erie from Erie PA or Twitter and Instagram at K-A-T-H-Y-B-R-D-L-Y. And this episode is available on these platforms, Facebook, iTunes, Podbean.com, and Spotify. And again, I'm also available on Twitter and Instagram at K-A-T-H-Y-B-R-D-L-Y. Now, this is usually where I have some little nugget to offer, but this time I just want to share. This past week weekend, I spent some time with my dad, and it was a spur-of-the-moment kind of deal. He's 83 years old, and he's slowing down a lot. With everything else going on right now, I just have to say, take the time and spend as much as you can with your family. We don't know what's going around, what's around the corner. Take today for what it is, present. You cannot change the past and tomorrow isn't guaranteed. So stay safe, stay healthy. This is Kathy, signing off.